Greetings, little one. Are you a good witch or a bad witch? Bad witch! I'm not a witch, I'm your wife! What makes you think she's a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt! A newt. What's thou like to live deliciously? Got better. Dost thou comprehend? Welcome to Real Magic, the podcast at the crossroads of real witchcraft and Hollywood magic, where paganism and the supernatural meet their reflections in movies and television, and where we talk about what real magical or life lessons we can learn from fictional witches from 100 years of moving pictures. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. Hey there, witches and weirdos, and welcome to another episode of the Real Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Mason, and I'm really happy to have you with me today. I'm really actually very excited to have you here to talk about the first movie that I have seen in theaters in about 18 months, thanks to, you know, a little pandemic we had. Yes, for your sake and for the sake of pagan cinema, I put on my mask and checked into out a showing of David Lowry's The Green Knight, which was just released last month. And I'm so glad I did because this movie is even more pagan than I thought it could, was when I went to it. And it's also a fascinating, beautifully made, and very challenging film. So it's a perfect topic for us to discuss today. To discuss the Green Knight, we have with us today Alicia Grasso, who is a pop culture writer like me, who works, whose work you can find on places like Screen Rant, Adam Tickets, and more. And she's also a druid and an expert in the original poem, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. She's the perfect guest, and it was an amazing conversation. She's so knowledgeable, and I'm so excited for you to enjoy it. Um, a slight warning, we are going to be talking about the whole film and the whole poem, so if you haven't seen it or don't know the poem, there will be spoilers, so spoiler alert. But with that in mind, let's talk about The Green Knight. Friends. Brothers and sisters. Who can... Regale me and my queen with some myth. Or tale. O greatest of kings, let one of your knights try to land a blow against me. Indulge me in this game. I will be thee. Welcome, Alicia Grasso, to the Real Magic Podcast. Thank you for being with us today to talk about the Green Knight. Great. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Before we like dive into the movie, I always like to ask, you know, an icebreaker kind of question. And it's, what was the movie for you, like as a kid, that sort of was your gateway to seeing the world from a magical perspective? Because I think for so many of us who are kind of witchy, magical, pagan people. There are always those movies that were so resonant for us as kids that kind of pushed us along on this journey. Oh, man. Um, you know, I don't even, it was usually books that did it for me more than um, more than movies. All the movies did too, but I was like, like voracious book reader as a kid. Um, and, but I would have to say for movies, um, I mean, all the 80s fantasy stuff, right? Yeah. Like The Princess Bride, 
uh, Neverending Story was obviously a big one. Uh, that was a huge one. Uh, Labyrinth, The Dark Crystal, yeah, um, even Legend, like all of yeah. the 80s fantasy movies. So my sisters and I were, were big movie watchers, actually. I have two younger sisters who I guess they're not, you know, young anymore, but younger um, than you. We, yeah. And like all of those, you know, all of the classic 80s movies, we watched those over and over and over again. In fact, my mom back when back when VHS tapes were a thing uh, my mom borrowed a VCR to record our favorite movies and I think one tape had uh, the Dark Crystal the Neverending Story and like Goonies on one and I think oh, the other good, one was like Labyrinth the Princess Bride and something else so yeah we had a had a couple of couple of those movies that we watched on on repeat you're actually the first person that's mentioned the never-ending story but it's definitely part of that like canon of like 80s fantasy movies that like defined pagan millennials i guess <laughs> oh that movie was i really <laughs> miss those movies like i wish we had i mean granted a lot of it changed it after the pg-13 rating and everything that kind of screwed everything up for kids movies but i really really wish that we still had those like kids adventure movies or even just fantasy movies, because we really don't even have many fantasy movies anymore. Um, So I've been glad to see kind of a resurgence on like in in TVs and movies. I've been glad to see a little bit of a resurgence on like Netflix. Yeah. I was going to say in terms of like a kid's um, adventure movie, it's not like fantasy, but it was got magical. That's good. It's finding Ohana on Netflix, which is sort of like the Mm -hmm. Goonies in Hawaii. It's a great little movie. I love that one. My child just watched it today. I think kids, honestly, I think the sense of adventure for kids, like kids don't really do that anymore. They're not really outside, like exploring and poking around, like they're inside playing video games. Yeah. And I'm going to find any hidden pirate ships. Well, today we're talking about less kid-friendly movie, which is The Green Knight, uh, (laughs) written and directed by David Lowry. And I was really excited to have you on this because you know a lot about the original poem this is based on you've written some great articles like explaining how the movie is different from the poem so before we dive into the movie what can you tell us about the poem the green sir gowan and the green knight and where it sits in like the canon of arthurian legends because there's no real like one primary source for arthurian legends it's like everything is pretty much fanfic of a legend that's just gets changed and added to depending on the era right i mean there's just so much over the past thousand years has been, you know, added to the canon, but there are a few, you know, kind of high points and like no notable names, yeah. and, you know, like you have, you have like Sir Thomas Mallory's, you have Lamort de Arthur, like that's yeah. kind of a definitive work. You have, uh, uh, Cretin de Troyes who did like a lot of the, um, uh, Lancelot you know, kind of romantic. Yeah, Lan- yeah. He added Lancelot yeah. and all the French like, guy the added the French knight. Yeah. The French, yeah. He did all the chivalric like romances. And then you had the, the, well, he's called, or they are called either the Gawain poet or the Pearl poet. They're anonymous. We don't actually know who they are. Um, and they wrote uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and like three other poems that are attributed to this same poet um, whose still identity still isn't known. Um, and it's also one of the more famous uh, pieces of Arthurian canon just because it's such a well done yeah. Poem. Um, it was one of those things that uh, they like after it came out, it was so popular that there were a lot of knockoff stories and a lot of kind of like copycat and ripoff stories. Um, so it kind of did for like Arthurian legend for a while, 
what Tolkien did for like high fantasy, how like everything mm-hmm. we see now, like elves, orcs, trolls, like that's all oh, Tolkien. Yeah. Tolkien. Yeah. Like it's all, it's all derivative from him, from Lord of the Rings and, and the Hobbit. And um, so that's kind of what this poem did for a while for Arthurian legend. Um, and it was also interesting too, because it wasn't solely focused on Arthur. It was yeah, uh, a piece that was focused on like a different character. Yeah. It was a spinoff. Yeah, basically, yeah. And so it was the 13th century that this was initially written, is what we believe, or we uh, don't really know. Late, no, late 14th century. Late 14th. So, so like late, late, late third, or yeah, late 14th century. So it would be late 1300s. So yeah. like, what was the context of this? Because this was a time of, I mean, every time for England was a time of political upheaval. Let's be honest. <laughs> but yes. what was like? You know, you talked about how. You said you said it much better than I will. The Christian Detroit, like his idea was the chivalric code and mm-hmm. Lancelot and the courtly love and romance. Like what was the kind of ethos that sort of brought Gowan and the Green Knight into the world? Like what was going on in the minds of people and audiences at that point? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because this is, you know, late 1300s, so obviously Christianity is around. Mm-hmm. But um it's still, but there are still people who practice pagan you know they still uh, stick to the old pagan ways like in pockets around yeah. uh, the united kingdom uh, around you know england scotland wales ireland um and so it's a really interesting um it's a really interesting time that it was written uh because the 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 Gawain poets three other poems have very very strong christian themes like they're very clearly christian and while Sir Gawain and the Green Knight has very Christian themes, it also has very, very overt pagan elements too. So it's a really yeah. interesting kind of look at the the you know pagan versus Christianity, ordered versus disordered, the man-made world versus the natural world. And this was also uh, a period of time where Morgan Le Fay in the poem, she's the one that, and also in the movie, she's the one that orchestrates everything. Although yeah. her motivations of the poem are a lot more petty she basically yeah. just wants to get back at Guinevere and scare Guinevere to death yeah which is, that's yeah. an interesting way to go it's a very fairy tale like let's not just stab someone let's find the most intricate way to kill yes. them maybe yes and it's so but it's interesting because Morgan Le Fay early like early early in the like earliest accounts of like Arthurian legend back when it was like mostly based in you know Welsh um mythology she was actually seen as a really benevolent figure uh she was kind of associated with the fey folk and yeah. either as morgan like a goddess yeah. exactly morgan the fairy it's literally what her name translates to and she was much more of a benevolent protector of arthur and then as christianity took hold well specifically male-dominated patriarchal christianity took hold um the thought of a woman with power and you know sexuality power and you know seduction and all of that and magic like no 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 so they recast her as a villain as so many strong powerful women you know pagan women in history got the the you know hit job once christian Mm -hmm. they became witches yeah rewrote them and so this is kind of that time period right when she's starting to become like a true villain um and more of an antagonist rather than than a protagonist and, and support and it's interesting you said like how the pearl the pearl poet the gown poet had very christian ideals but 
this is a very pagan poem and a very pagan movie. And mm-hmm. it's interesting. It's a perfect example of how pagan symbolism and traditions and ethos like kind of makes its way into ostensibly Christian stories. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it all takes place in a chapel at Christmas, but all of this is very much also like it's a very much a solstice sort of Yuletide rebirth mm-hmm. story. I was in, um, have you ever heard of the Christmas revels? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I did the Christmas Revels a few years and we did a Sir Gowan and the Green Knight Revels. Nice. And so the Revels is, you know, you sing a lot of Christmas songs and it's all about Christmas traditions, but it's also the Revels is incredibly pagan and its centerpiece is always this poem, The Shortest Day. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very kind of at that intersection of paganism and Christianity where like yeah. they're in kind of in balance before things go terribly wrong as they often do. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a beautiful poem. And so we have this beautiful, weird, dreamy uh, movie by David Lowry that is very different from the poem. And so for our listeners, spoiler alert, uh, I know it sounds like we can't really have a spoiler on, you know, a 700-year-old poem, but they actually do change a lot in the movie. I mean, it kind of ends, it ends the same and differently. The beats are all the same. Yeah. The core uh, themes are the same, but how he gets there is different. And so I, maybe for your listeners who may, may be did not ever read the poem, um, basically what happens is it's uh, around King Arthur's court around uh, Christmas time, uh, although it's actually like New Year's is when it happens, but it's still that long, it's like winter week long celebration it's a, for New Christmas. Year's is in the 12 days of Christmas. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And uh, they're all celebrating feasting and Arthur always, before he sits down to have a feast, he always wants to hear stories of tales. Like he wants somebody, he wants one of his knights to regale him with tales of, you know, something fantastic. And at that moment, this enormous knight in all in green, uh, green hair, mm. green skin, green clothing, a green horse, uh, although not in the movie, but uh, green, everything shows up uninvited, unannounced. And uh, challenges Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table to a, a, a to trade blows, basically, and the the crux of it is that we'll trade blows. Like I will, I will allow you to land a blow on me, and in exchange you'll get basically this magnificent axe that I have and bragging rights for a year. But then in a year you have to come find me in the Green Chapel, and then I return the blow that you gave me. Um, and so Arthur goes to take him up on it. Um, and he's, you know, Arthur's all hot blooded and young in the poem and goes to take him up on it. And then Gawain jumps in the way and basically was like, no, 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 no. I'm, you know, let me do this, you know, let me do this highness. Like it's my turn to prove myself. And so Gawain ends up getting, uh, in the way because again, it was really Morgan Le Fay who orchestrated it because she was mad at at Guinevere, mad at her brother and just wanted to cause chaos. And so Gawain kind of just accidentally ended up in her way. Um, and then he goes, you know, on this, this quest to find the green knight a year, cuts off the knight's head. Yeah. Well, that, that's yeah. something that happened. Like I went to see this movie with my wife and mm-hmm. that was her first question. She's like, why did he just not like cut his cheek or something? Why did you have to go all the way to the head cutting off count? And like, you went a bit overboard, kind of a dick move. And then it kind of immediately backfires on him. Cause like the knight just picks up his head and be like, okay, see you in a year. Good job there. Yeah, and that's when he's like, oh, I made a mistake. Crap. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I mean, if you think about it, and, you know, (laughs) 
I mean, there's no other way it could have gone. Yeah. Like, he gives him a tiny nick in the neck, and then his quest is to go get yeah. a little cut in the neck. Yeah, there's no like, glory yeah. in that. But. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's trying to make his, you know, make his name. He's trying to make make his glory. So, um, so yeah. So then the rest of the poem and the movie. Uh, is him heading off on this quest a year later and grappling with the elements. It's it's very much like man versus nature and man versus himself because he's trying to figure out what kind of man he is. Yeah. The movie spends a lot more time on the, you know, the quest to find the Green Chapel and the Green Knight. Yes. And he's out and, and it's very, you know, it's very art house film. And there's an interesting part in the movie and I have not read the poem for a long time where he encounters some giants. Is that in the no no okay no and, Most and the of... three the three people he meets yeah. um the extra ones the scavenger uh or actually there's a bunch of characters added essel the scavenger winifred those are all mm-hmm. um different those are all added to the movie yeah and they feel like something that would come out of like chaucer or some sort of medieval poem but they're they're very archetypal yeah. and winifred's actually based on saint winifred like she's a real martyr she really was beheaded um so yeah. that yeah so she's a real person but even yeah the rest of them are very like archetypal characters that are there to teach Gawain a lesson yeah he meets um what's interesting is like he meets the scavenger uh who like steals his horse and his like girdle which his mother Morg- his mother in this poem is more in the movie is morgan lefay mm-hmm. though though she's never named as such no one's ever right. gets a name beside him or essel i guess yeah, uh, i think him essel and winifred are the only ones that ever have like yeah. actual names but his mother is very much a witch and she's the one who summons the green knight with her fellow witches in a very magical cool scene and she also, but she also makes him this girdle, this belt sewn in with magic. And that's part of the original story. But in the story, it's just something he gets from the lady Bertil- Bertilac. Am I pronouncing? Bertilac, yeah. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's like it's stolen from him and somehow she gets it back. So he feels much more entitled to it. Um, I just thought the saga of the girdle was more interesting in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, I mean, you know, you have to understand this is also written again. It's like medieval writing, which their writing conventions were a lot different. Yeah. Um, And quite, but quite frankly too, I mean, a lot fewer people could read back then and it was the rich aristocracy, but they also had longer attention spans than we do. Like we're kind of, honestly, modern audiences kind of need things to be like spoon fed to them because we don't do real well with morality tales and like ambiguity. Yeah. Which is interesting because this film is very ambiguous. It is very ambiguous. It's very, um, leaves a lot up for interpretation. Like, is this whole journey, like how much of it is even all in Gowan's head? Because twice in the movie, there are two very big, like flash forwards where he sort of sees yeah. the, you know, where the road diverts in the woods. And he's like, nope, I'm going to do the thing, the other thing. And yeah. it's, they're beautifully done. There's a beautiful kind of flash forward to seeing him like turn into a skeleton and if he just sits there and does nothing and then mm-hmm. uh, goes back where he's like, nope, not going to do that. Yeah, um, yeah. I thought those were really well done. Yeah. It was beautifully, beautifully made, very like eerie, spooky filmmaking. Cause it does kind of put you in this idea of like, which a lot of fantasy movies do is like how much of this is a real journey and how much of this is, mm-hmm. you know, all in his head. And it doesn't really matter if it is because it's about the transformation. Yeah. Well, he used a very interesting uh, visual marker too throughout the movie where, because you know, it's, it's all about the safe ordered Christian world with yeah. Camelot versus the wild, untamed, unpredictable pagan world outside. Um, and, you know, and you see that conflict 
inside the walls of Camelot already because when in the very beginning of the movie when Gawain asks his mom are you going to come to the feast she's like nah I'm gonna skip it and you can see that there's a very you can see there's some tension there like you can tell like oh there's a weird reason she doesn't want to go to the feast and then you realize oh this is Morgan Le Fay she's pagan she's a practicing witch of course she's not gonna want to go to the Christian festival you know of her or a Christian feast but when he's outside of the castle, outside of Camelot, there's a really interesting visual trick that David Lowry uses where there's mist and fog is used a lot in this movie. And mm-hmm. it always denotes, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's literal, uh, you know, or visual symbolism of him literally stepping between worlds where yeah. when he steps through the fog and the mist, that's when the line between the non-magical and the magical worlds kind of blur. It's when, you know, the order versus disordered known versus unknown. Like, so it's always those transitional phases where he's about to step into something a little more magical or supernatural. It's when he crosses through, you know, you see a lot of fog and mist. Yeah. And he, he has a little um, animal companion friend at some point. Yes. Uh, yeah. Talking fox. That's great. I loved the fox. But also I think that like one of the kind of elements make it very unreal and magical is it sort of draws on in the original poem, the Green Knight's just like a guy. I don't know how he managed the whole like turning green and getting his head cut off, but he's, he's revealed to be. Yeah. She's yeah. Oh, magic. She enchants yeah. him. Yeah. yeah. It's magic. She enchants yeah. him. Yeah. He's like, can you, can I keep the whole that dying with my head yeah. cut off thing? Could that, that be useful? <laughs> Maybe he had that girdle on, but he is also like the knight that Gowan stays with. Yeah. And in this case, like it's sort of ambiguous whether or not they're the same. They're played by different actors, correct? They are. Uh, Ralph Innocent or Innocent ever says, and he does the green knight because he has that, you know, real oh, notable, distinct voice. Yeah. Deep, resonant voice. Um, and then Joel Edgerton plays the Lord or Lord Bertolac in the poem. But uh, there is a scene in the movie, and, and most people miss this, but if you go back and watch, when the camera, when he walks into the green chapel and the green knight is sleeping and the camera kind of pans around the green knight and shows him, it's really subtle, but uh, over his face, the different character faces kind of are superimposed and flash really quickly, and it ends on Joel Edgerton's face. So it's implied or like hinted in that that scene that's very subtle uh that they might be the the, the same person yeah and uh, or at least that they're all connected to the same thing which would be Morgan Le Fay who is also you can assume she's also the mother or the old lady with the yeah you know, blindfold in the in his in the lord's castle and then the lady is played by Alicia Vikander who is his mm-hmm girlfriend back in or his prostitute friend Essel, yeah she Essel, plays Essel, yeah yeah, yeah. his, his yeah. peasant girl yeah yeah then so that was interesting I think my favorite part of the whole movie was was her speech about how everything returns to green and kind of green. about death mm-hmm. and it was beautifully done great which is which is interesting because her speech about green is um it's it basically touches on all of the different interpretations scholars and historians have had over the years about what green symbolizes in this uh in in the poem because you know on the surface you tend to think oh green's nature green's pagan yeah. green's nature green's natural and it the is the green man yeah the green man exactly but it also represents uh decay yeah. sickness uh rot and and that's also in there too because there are those fantasy kind of horror elements in the poem as well yeah it's interesting how green is so it signifies otherworldliness when it's a person um 
first episode I did on here was all about the Wizard of Oz and how that was visually like the first time we ever saw a green witch and how it caught on so mm-hmm. powerfully because it has those dual associations with like nature and magic, but also it's like entirely unnatural and rather unhealthy for mm-hmm. someone to be bright green. And it was very unhealthy for Margaret Hamilton because she you know, caught on fire for a little while. But she's like, yes, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also thought it was interesting how David Lowry's uh, uh, um, visual uh, design for the character for the Green Knight was very different and more pagan oh, yeah. than the version in the poem. Because in the poem, he basically just looked like a, a nobleman. Like mm-hmm. he just happened to be all green. Um, and, you know, he had but he had like jewel encrusted, like emerald encrusted, uh, you know, bridle and saddle and, and, and weapons. And his uh, cloak was trimmed in ermine, I think, and he had silk and leather. And so he was a nobleman and clearly a very wealthy one. He just happened to be all green. And so I thought it was very interesting that uh, because back then it would have, that would have been impressed a, you know, medieval audience, but it would have looked kind of silly now and so I think it was really smart on David Lowry's part to to make him basically the walking equivalent of the green man and even the kind of branched uh the branches that kind of go up like horns kind of uh you know kind of uh you know harken back to like her new nose and like the horn you know the horn god horn god yeah and yeah and uh so I thought it was really smart of him and he has like the twigs you know make his beard and, and bark face and so I was like oh okay I like this design a lot more actually than the original poem yeah, it's a fantastic design. And I think the Green Knight is much scarier in this movie than he is in the poem because like he sort of shows up in the poem like, oh, it's it's just trade some blows. And then in this one, he he seems to very much to kind of be summoned by Morgan and her circle of witches. Then uh he has this terrifying scene where instead of speaking, he reads this letter and the and Guinevere sort of channels his voice and it's super spooky. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much more horror tinged. I mean, there are definitely elements of that in the medieval poem, but it is also a lot funnier. Like the scene where he arrives is actually really funny, um, like because he shows up and he literally just starts trash talking uh, Arthur yeah. and Arthur's men like he's like chat like oh I heard you guys with the big bad knights you all look like little babies to me you know like he's right. just he's literally just tr- oh you're the king like you're the king like you're a child like and so and Arthur gets Arthur takes the bait he gets yeah. super mad and is like this oh is- I'm gonna fight you yeah and and then Goblin's like oh whoa, whoa 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 like I'll step in and do this but and then there's the scene in the poem that always makes me laugh where the the poet the pearl poet or Goblin poet is painstakingly going through detailing the um you know how green the night is and all of his equipment and his his clothing and his you know in detail and then kind of sums it up and he's like uh to the list all this would take too long anyway moving on like he's like, very much like moving on like what were you just this. doing man yeah so it's a lot there's a lot more humor in it um a lot more like you know chest thumping Mm-hmm. Um, and it's played out much in a much more like kind of direct challenge to like their manhood and like the knights they are rather than this, which is there's a lot working under the surface. Like there's a lot of supernatural, like this comes across very much more as a, it, the movie version comes across a lot more as a test where like the version of the poem is much more straightforward, like man to man challenge. The one in the movie, there's a lot of undercurrents that you're like, ooh, I really don't know how he should play this. Like this, like there's a lot going on here that 
I don't think yeah. any of them know, like there's a deeper game being played than none of them realize. And it's very spooky. It's very spooky. And I love that. Like there's, as you said, there's a lot of ambiguity in the movie because it is still kind of all Morgan Le Fay has made this happen, but you don't really know why she did it. Like you could take the point of view that she did it so that Gowan would come back with glory. And in this scenario, he would be Arthur's heir and be the king, as you see in the sort of flash forward. And it would be about power. And she'd sort of be like a Cersei Lannister sort of figure here. Like she just wanted her son to be the one in power. But you could also see this is like, it's a mom who's like, son is sort of failure to launch. And she's like, this is going to help you be a man and grow up some. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of like that personally a bit more that she just wanted to like kind of get him motivated to maybe it's look, take a look Faye. at his life. I mean, it's Morgan of Fate, so very well could be both because she's yeah. very much a character that historically has always had her motivations have historically kind of been a little bit more almost like the elves and Lord of the Rings. You know, she's been a lot more like the ancient kind of deities where their sense of morality, like doesn't operate like human morality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she, she very well could be doing it for her son. Like I read it that way, but also in the back of her mind, she's probably thinking he's also probably the closest thing that there is to an heir. And I'm damn well going to get my son ready to take the throne because I will not have anybody else take the throne, you know? So, and the way it ends, it could be, you know, we have this flash forward towards the end where he sees sort of his life and he kind of screws over Essel and like everything sort of goes great and also terrible as life is. And maybe, you know, he'll come back and still be the king, but he'll be a better person for having had this experience and having learned kind of humility and learned some honesty. Yeah. I read his flash forward at the end, you know, because as the axe is about to fall and the green knight's about to, you know, ostensibly uh, decapitate him um, and, and Goblin's still wearing the belt, the magical girdle that would protect him from harm. He has that flash forward moment that you alluded to before it's actually not a moment it's an extended it's like quite long yeah Yeah. and I read that as he has a moment like it it takes a long time but it kind of all flashes in an instant in his mind and he has this moment of insight and realizes that if he wins this challenge so to speak through deceit and he goes back to Camelot and he has this glory you know piled on him and he wins he earns his reputation through a lie essentially and and really he was a coward that that knowledge that guilt that self-loathing will eat at him and he will become this sort of man and it's not he's not particularly a good man in the the you know no. future vision he has um and so you know that's the moment that he realizes he would rather die honorably then live, you know, like a coward. And so then he removes the the girdle and that's why he passes the test. It's not the accepting the blow, really. That's not the real test. The test is removing that girdle and yeah. facing it honorably. And so I really like that, that, that scene, but it's interesting because then it's it the opposite kind of, of the original poem too. Yeah. 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 So, cause yeah, on the original poem, he leaves the girdle on and then the knight forgives him anyway because he's like you just love your life because you're human like that's fine um but it does beg the question that it it, did morgan know this was all going to go this way or did she just throw her son out to the wilderness and basically saying like go with go with her her," you know (laughs) the equivalent of pagan equivalent go with god um because knowing he may not come back um Mm -hmm. he may not face these tests or, or he may not pass these tests um I think that's an option too, because 
Morgan Le Fay does not strike me as a particularly warm, fuzzy mother. Like she loves in her own way and her own way is very much like, you know, kind of a, you know, mom that might, mother gerbil that might eat her children. Yeah. Um, You know. But like that's sort of more profound and it's very much also kind of pagan because you said like she's sort of that older God who's not, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, still works in mysterious ways, but those ways can be transformative and painful. Like mm-hmm. you think about people who work with Bridget, like I've heard this expression, when you work with Bridget, she'll have you on the anvil. And mm-hmm. also when you work with like the Morrigan. Who... You, you, you do not enter into a pact with her as your patron deity lightly. Nope. I have her, yeah. I have her uh, altar behind me over there. And I have not asked for that yet because I am like, I don't know if I'm ready to give that yet because she demands a lot. The Morgan demands a lot. She does. And it is a lot of intensity is a lot of, I mean, she is associated with death and battle and danger and transformation in all these ways. And so the, there, I mean, there's no, the line between, I know a lot of people connect the Morgan to Morgan Le Fay because Mm -hmm. just the names, but there's very little like, historical evidence in either direction since Morgan is Ireland. Morgan Le Fay was probably Welsh, but it's like, it's this whole long history where you can see some of the similarities, but there's also a lot of differences. Yeah. I mean, and that, I mean, you know, well, that like that happens with almost all gods, you know, there are so many gods that um, kind of, they're kind of become an amalgamation yeah. or characters that become, you know, they're amalgam yeah. of different, different. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, so I, I definitely always saw Morgan Le Fay as more of a, you know, if we're talking about pagan versus Christianity, more of like the old Testament God versus like yeah. the new Testament God, like she's, she's fire and brimstone. She's less loving. And like, I will forgive you. She's more like, if you die, you die. Yeah. You know? One of the interesting things they had in the design of this movie is like, they made it very like overtly pagan and even the culture in Camelot is very much like Mm -hmm. a synthesis of Christian symbolism with pagan symbolism. And so all, and Arthur and all his knights have pentagram or pentacles on and yeah, yeah. but that's, well, the pentagram, the pentacle changed, uh, over you, it meant it used to mean something very different in medieval times. Um, the actually, interestingly enough, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is the first use of the word uh, pentangle or pen, uh, not pentacle, but pentangle in English language. Oh, I did. Um, but back then, the pentagram wasn't seen. So it's interesting because this is this is medieval times, right? In the yeah. Middle Ages, and again, this is when Christianity has taken over. But there's still a lot of pagan yeah. practice and influences. A lot of things that now we see as purely pagan or witchcraft were practiced by Christians back then. So there were a lot of, uh, we call them like they got very popular because of other A24 movies, you know, the witches marks. Um, but there were a lot of symbols in the middle ages that were used as symbols of protection to ward off demons and, uh, and spirits. And the pentagram was actually used as a symbol of protection. And so, and it was also associated with uh, uh, different knightly virtues. So there was like 
this whole thing with medieval like number uh, theology or sorry, medieval medieval number theory. And the Sir Gawain, the Gawain poet was obsessed with it, especially with yeah. the number five. So you have the pentagram with its five points and each point was supposed to represent um, five virtues. So like one point represented the five fingers on Gawain's hand that held the sword. One point represented like the five uh, knightly virtues. One point represented the five wounds that Christ had and like so on and so forth. And so um, it was very much this idea in the Middle Ages that numbers had power. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if they necessarily would have called it magic, but some would have called it magic, but they were still practicing Christian. It was a very weird blend of like mysticism and magic and and you know but then also christianity and so numbers had a lot of meaning and so the the uh, pentacle the pentagram was back then seen as a symbol of protection from evil and from uh demons Mm -hmm. which i thought was really interesting yeah i think and it's interesting that that's so because that's entrenched in the poem but like also Mm -hmm. to like modern audiences seeing that and it's definitely like emphasized exactly. it's mm-hmm. lampshaded in the film they're like hey look they, they, he's wearing a pentagram and but also there's this like circle of witches and they've got yeah. stuff going on and it's like it's showing that a lot of fives so there's a lot yeah. of things coming in fives but then even little details too that la- that are very pagan and that also come from the poem like when he rides in uh and this is something so small it's, it's easy to be missed he has a sprig of holly in his hand yeah when he rides into the castle and that's from the poem and that's also pagan yeah and so that's a very interesting thing i was like oh interesting i was like david yeah. lowry made sure to include like a lot of these little like pagan medieval like mysticism like touches and he wasn't i'm not he wasn't like overt about it but he wasn't super subtle either like he made a point to that these elements were very much part of the movie too yeah one of my favorite like vaguely pagan lines is when gowan is um you know, robbed by the scavenger and the scavenger is told Michael, I'll take you to the green chapel. And, mm-hmm. you know, Gowan says, where is the green chapel? And they're in a woods. He says, you're in it. And I just like yeah. that, like, ah, yes, there's the, there's the Druid chapel. They're in the grove yeah. of, of trees and yeah, that's the chapel too. And they also make a kind of interesting bit of like, he walks for, through a wood that's being cut down talking about like, you, you mentioned, you know, the modern world on top of nature and mm-hmm. trying to Kind of conquer it and you see that sort of like a deforestation scene mm-hmm. yeah it's the and it's just littered with bodies with dead yeah bodies which is interesting um although that scene is also just kind of funny inherently in it of itself because Gawain like it's so clear this guy's lying to Gawain and about to rob him yeah it's almost and Gawain's so like oh just this way and he's like yes sir right this way and you're like Gawain he is setting you up man yeah. and then he's like oh okay thank you so much kind stranger and you're like oh it's, it's, you sweet summer child. Yeah, you know? it's, a, it's a few hairs short of like, it's almost, you know, Python-esque to, you know, yes, reference yeah. another, like yes. uh, the greatest version of the King Arthur legends ever. Obviously, yes. Uh, yeah, and so it's it's really interesting too. And then I appreciate that they, that nature is really emphasized in this. Just so much of the, I mean, some of this was done on sets, um, but a lot of it was just, you know, they just let like the natural landscape around them. And I, cause I shot in Ireland uh, around, I can't remember the name of the castle, but it was around there. Um, and they let most of the natural landscape, like do the talking for them. And it's stunning. Like it's, yeah. it's such a, it, it really is a movie that, um, 
it emphasizes the beauty of the natural world. My my friend and Melissa, also how dangerous it is. Too. Exactly, exactly. My friend Melissa Fitzsimmons, uh, she's an indie filmmaker, and she has a film that's making rounds in uh, festivals right now. It's called Everything in the End, and she shot it in Iceland. And it's a beautiful movie because there's just so much of the beautiful, you know, Icelandic landscape. And she really emphasizes that. And I thought about her movie when I was watching this movie because, uh, you know, Andrew uh, draws Palermo, the cinematographer is so smart about letting a lot of the landscape, like do the heavy lifting for him. And I just thought it does a really good job of just emphasizing the natural, natural beauty and danger, like you said, of just the natural wild world. Yeah. It's like, it's stark. It's beautiful and stark. And like, this is winter. I mean, he's doing this around Christmas. It's not a great time to be out in the wild and, you know, props and all the comments to like Dev Patel is wonderful in this role. He's mm-hmm. great, really? but also he like David Lowry put him through it. <laughs> like, I asked him about that. The- I interviewed him and I asked him about that. I was like, you spent a lot of time wet and muddy in this movie. And he was like, yeah, that wasn't great. It's like me and the horse were like really going through it. So yeah, uh, yeah I was like, that just seemed not pleasant. And he's like, it wasn't always, but, um, but yeah, it's just such a, it's such a visceral, like it's, it's, it's interesting because it's such a beautiful movie, but it's also such a visceral movie. Like you can mm-hmm feel how cold it is like you can feel the misery like the misery of just this quest of just being on his own versus the elements you know having lost all of his possessions um just hungry starving like you can feel the misery coming through the screen so good job dev patel and good job david lowry just putting dev patel through his paces dev patel like he he carries this movie i mean he is yes on screen for almost like the entirety of the movie he has to go through all sorts of emotions and you know physical punishment and he just does a wonderful job as his character and and it's not and he it's such important casting because if you had cast like a lesser actor you would have been just like no I want I want to die he's kind of a jerk a lot of the time exactly and that's you have to have this inherently like charismatic and like lovable person like and that's Dev Patel, he's wonderful. Exactly. And that actually that same interview, I asked him about that because I said, you're Gawain. I was like, so you're Gawain. Very different from the poem. And he was like, yes. <laughs> and, uh, and he had never read the poem before he did this role, but he said, you know, doing research and reading bits of it, um, he realized that, oh, this is very different. And he actually, in the beginning, very early on, went to David Lowry and was like, okay, how do we make this guy a little more likable? Because he's like, at the beginning, he was awful. Like he was just this guy with a silver spoon in his mouth and just not, you know, and and I could see that because um, even in the beginning and knowing the poem the way I do and like understanding why David Lowry kind of updated his character or changed it. Mm -hmm. Even I, for like the first like actor, so I was like, ooh. I don't know, man. I'm having a real hard time getting on board with this yeah. dude and rooting for him. Like I'm having yeah, a hard time rooting right for him. Yeah. I'm like, I'm <laughs> kind of rooting for the elements, you know? Um, and then he got there in the end, but man, it takes a really talented actor. Like you said, to be able to carry the weight of like being established pretty early on is like not really likable. Yeah. Um, and then still getting you to kind of like root for him at the end and, and, but also show that vulnerability because he spends a lot of time being very vulnerable and naive in this movie too. And, and that's a really tough balance. And he does a really good job 
Oh, there's one scene where he's, you know, out there in the night and he's starving and he reaches for these like wonderfully photographed mushrooms. And you yes. just, and you're like, no, never eat you mushrooms. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, oh, this would be bad. Like, yeah. No, and it's immediately bad consequences. Yes. But it's just like this, he does a wonderful job in this role. I think Alicia Vikander is wonderful. Um, I'm forgetting her name right now, but she was the flag smasher in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Oh uh, yeah, Aaron Kellyman. Aaron Kellyman is wonderful as Winifred in this very, what do you make of that interlude? It was such an interesting interlude because he basically meets a ghost who helps, who needs a saint ghost who needs yeah. help getting her head back. And it's kind of, it's it's very eerie. Aaron Kellyman's great there. Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. It's interesting because, again, she was a character that David Lowry added, but unlike the rest of the characters that he added to the movie, she's actually, she's Saint Winifred, which is a real, you know, martyr. But what was interesting is that she's from a much earlier time. Like, I think she's like sixth or seventh century. Yeah. Um, And she's, but she's also Welsh. Um, And so she fits kind of seamlessly into the story because her story is exactly what it was in the movie. She was uh a, a young welsh girl i think her name was like what welsh was like one of one of it was almost like one of your like one of our one of one of our something like that in the ancient welsh um and she wanted to become uh, she wanted to be a nun so she's keeping herself pure and then this nobleman uh caradoc saw her and uh thought she was hot decided to woo her and she wasn't having any of it so he raped her mm-hmm. or she ran away from him and he got mad and he raped her and uh she you know he got so enraged that she spurned his advances that he decapitated her and then saint uh i think it's i'm not sure pronounce it Beono, like Beono, something like that saint, well saint Bino, yeah saint Bino, <laughs> something like that he uh found her head and restored it to her body and prayed and she was you know resurrected um and so that's how that story you know kind of plays out in the mythology and then in the movie it kind of has a similar way of or it, it touches upon those elements. Um, I guess I thought that it kind of served two purposes, right? Because there's the beginning where, and I think you can see the two purposes supposed to serve, like two tests in the two moments that he screwed up with her. And the first was when he went to touch her to see if she was like a ghost. And she was like, why are you, like, why would you yeah, touch me? Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. And then the second is when she asked him to retrieve her head from the, her skull, you know, from the lake, the pond. And he's like, what will you give me? And she's like, why would you even ask that? And so I, to me, I think the two lessons, yeah. She's yeah like, why you such a dick yeah. all the time? <laughs> so I think the two lessons he's supposed to take are one altruism, like, mm-hmm sometimes you just do things for like, if you, like knights don't do things expecting to get payment or things in return. They do them because it's the right thing to do because they're helping the weak and the downtrodden, the damsel in distress. And two, here's how you treat women. Like here's her story. Her story is a cautionary tale about the kind of man you don't want to be. You don't yeah. touch a woman without her consent. You don't, even though she was a ghost and like he thought she was a ghost, she still looks like yeah. one in front of him. So, you know, I, I think I, those are the two lessons that, that I read it as him uh, needing to take away from that interaction. Yeah. And in her, I don't think it's the same actress, but in like his flash forward at the end, his wife that he mm. takes, you know, sort of to that's cast a, as it. That's it. She looks similar, but it's a yeah, different actress. Yeah. But I feel like the, 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 the hair, like her hair is also red. Um, she has, like, she looks like she has a little yeah. bit of freckles. Yeah. yeah it feels like yeah. it's an intentional callback to Winifred, but that's, you know, I was looking yeah. for a double casting. I'm like, wait, is that her? No, I can't tell. Yeah, she, I cannot remember her name. Her her name is, um, 
I will look it up because she it's, it's a different actress, but this is like literally her. And it's on the top of that. Like it's on the tip of my tongue and I can't remember it, but she is like a brand new actress. Like this was the only okay. thing she's ever been in. I want to say Megan Tiernan. That's it. So do you have like a favorite moment that we haven't like touched on? Hmm. Um, we could talk about the Fox again, you know, his kind of magical natural guide. We kind of had that, uh, yeah, the fox is the fox is interesting, um, and I thought that was really smart of David Lowry how he wove that in because that was taken because the in the main poem, or the the only poem, uh, the original poem, it, the whole scene of like Lord Burdalak's castle takes place over three days, and yeah. so there's an extended sequence. The last day is Lord Burdalak is hunting a fox, and it cuts back and forth between Lord Burdalak's hunt and this wily fox, you know, evading him, evading capture. And it cuts back and forth between the hunt and the scene in the castle where Lady Burdalak is trying to seduce uh, Gawain. And he's dodging her advances through very, very clever wordplay. And like, you know, like, oh, I'm I'm a knight. Oh, I, you know, have someone. Oh, I'm not looking for a girl or for any yeah. love right now. I, and yeah, also, he's you're very married to my host. But he, <laughs> yeah, but in the end, the, the you know, the Lord catches the fox just as Gawain catches, or the, uh, you know, lady finally catches Gawain and, and gives him three kisses, um, but, which is very different than the movie. Um, yeah, very different but, scene in the movie. Yeah, yes. But I thought that that was an interesting, I thought that, having the fox as his guide was a really interesting way of um, paying homage to that scene and that parallel scene while not dragging the movie down. So it was still a quite long movie. It was a very slow burn movie. Yeah. Um, I think one of the scenes that I really liked was um, I really, the giant scene too, I thought was interesting. It very much yeah. reminded me of Gulliver's travels. Like yeah. and I, I thought it was interesting because that was also the moment where all these strange things had happened but you could still tie them back to natural you know occurrences or christian occurrences because the scavenger was just your like average like he's highway. yeah he's a bandit i mean yeah he's and then he highway. met a saint like he's he a brigand did. then he, you know and like there's some supernatural element there but she's a saint so she's a christian it's it's christian uh you know supernatural uh entity not pagan supernatural um, it's not magical, it's Christian. And so once he hits that crest and sees the 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 giants in the mist, like that's very much kind of like it's like I kind of read it as like that point in the map, you know, where here there be dragons. Know, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like we don't know what's beyond this point. Like what's beyond this point is we we haven't filled this part of the map out yet. It's all wild and monsters and and we, you know dangerous things and i kind of read that as anything past that cliff like once he sees the giants like he is way off the map like yeah it's it's you know so far beyond his understanding of like the ordered and christian like now he's dealing with giants and all this stuff and uh i love and that I really he's just that like moment. can i have a lift guy yeah <laughs> like that's his response it's like hey i'm really tired could you carry me yeah it's like okay yeah. uh, which i thought and that moment's interesting too because then the wolf howls and scares off because the giant looks like it might be about to pick him up and give him a ride or or, ki or kill him Eat like him, it, it yeah. could go either way and the the fox howls and mm -hmm. scares the giant away and i oh i thought that was interesting because at that moment i kind of read that moment as i don't know if the fox 
was Morgan Le Fay mm-hmm. or if she was just working through the Fox. Um, but I read that at that moment as her, like the, I read that as like the one time she stepped in and protected her son without it being some sort of test because either she scared the giant away because it was like, no, he cannot take this like ride. He can't cheat like this. He has to like do this on his own or scaring the giant away from, you know, killing Gawain. So I thought it was interesting that that was like that moment that the Fox chose to howl and like magically scared them. And so I always, I, I kind of read that as like Morgan working yeah. through the Fox. I like that. Like I was, his, her son's one freebie. Yeah. I like, I always, for most of the movie, I thought the Fox was Winifred. I thought she is just sort of like decided to stick around and like help out this poor idiot. Yeah, um, I kind of wondered that too, especially the red hair and everything. Yeah, exactly. Too. It's like there's a lot of visual signifiers there. I but. was a little like, I was like, oh, I don't know. Like I'm a little like, um, you know, ambiguous about that. But I think it was that moment really with the, with the, um, the giants. And I was like, oh, okay. I think this is maybe Morgan Le Fay now yeah. like working through him. But that's the thing. Like there's so much ambiguity yeah. in this movie. It can really be read in a number of ways. Looking back now, I... I mean, I can definitely see why people don't love this movie. It is, it's very much a movie that makes you work for it. Yeah. It's allegorical and mm-hmm. it's complicated. And I went to see it with my wife who is not so much into like art house movies, let's yeah. say. And she's like, why, why do I let you pick movies? Cause like I've made her see like some, we have a bad history. Like one time, like, oh, let's watch Repo, the genetic opera, which I thought was oh. fine. She's like, no, never again. Yeah. <laughs> So I, yeah, I definitely, um, there were a few times that I maybe wish he had been a little clearer in, in meaning and intent, um, because pretty much the entire movie is all up open for interpretation and I'm fine with like interpretation and movies making it work, but I think it might've been, and I, and I love this movie. I Mm -hmm. think it's fantastic, but I think it might've been even stronger if, if he had tightened it up a little bit or made a few, just a few things, a little clearer or more direct in the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, because ultimately if this is a test about morality and like testing oneself and who he is, and then it's very open interpretation, like that kind of, it almost feels like it undercuts itself a little bit. You know, yeah. like he like almost like was afraid to take a stand on who that person should be. Yeah. And so he was just like, so I will leave it up to you. You know, it's like, like it's like the filmmaking equivalent of like when somebody asks you a question that like, well, what do you think this means? And you're like, what do you think it means? Yeah. Like, like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's very interesting. I think it's interesting also, like you said, you mentioned this is from A24. I feel like A24 mm-hmm. is now like we've got I on this podcast, I've done like Midsommar. I've done the witch last A24 week. is very into they're, like pagan. They're like very like the premier yeah. pagan, you know, that and we got Loki with Marvel. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're... A24 is very, very pagan. Yeah. yeah. They're into like all the medieval, like a lot of twigs. A24 mm-hmm. loves, loves. A24 has never seen a scene like of like witchcraft invoking or summoning something with twigs that like, or, or warding something off. But it has never been like that's our movie. Yeah. Like, do you have twigs? Is there witchcraft involved? Are you either summoning something or keeping something out? Perfect. I respect we'll it. Distribute you know, this. We'll buy I, this. We'll distribute it. Yeah. And um, though it wasn't a twenty-four portrait of a lady on fire, also had yeah. some beautiful. That was neon, right? 
yes. Which Disney is like Amber. the other, yeah. Yeah, it's the other A24. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there's some great, wonderful pagan undercurrents in a lot of art house cinema right now. I'm really enjoying it. And I'm hopefully it continues because I think this was a beautiful, interesting movie. Not like an easy movie, but an interesting movie. Yeah. It's a movie that demands, it's not a movie you can sit and like scroll on your phone while you're watching it. Like it, yeah. it demands your full attention. Yeah. Um, and, and I admit like even I, I mean, I, I, I studied this stuff in school, you know, Arthurian legend. And even I, there were times I was like, I'm not sure what that meant. Like I did another podcast yesterday, um, the film cast podcast. And it was the scene where uh, uh, the lady has the green girdle again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, David Chen, he was, he asked me, he was like, well, how do you think she got the girdle? And I was like, that's the point where I stopped like, thinking. I was like, I, magic, don't, I, was, I was like, how did she? And I went, you know, what? I don't care. she's also like, his girlfriend. Like he's probably just hallucinating with all mushrooms at this point. Yeah. Like, how did she, how did she get that? And I was like, you know what? I don't care. Like, I'm just going to go with it. Like, that's not <laughs> she the has, point. Like, photographic camera <laughs> yeah and then he's like well that's even like assuming that it's the same girdle and I'm like I just I just looked at that and that's when my brain went I I don't know and I it doesn't matter magic that's that's how it happened yeah. magic like I'm just explaining yeah, this Morgan Le Fay magic that's it's, it it's fantasy it's like this is not meant to be you know a literal interpretation of like early English history because there's a too many gothic castles yeah. for <laughs> yeah um, but I do think that sometimes, yeah. I, and I think that's maybe the one reason why it might have served him to tighten up things a little more in terms of like mm-hmm. clear messaging, um, yeah. because there are moments that I think are just, they just are like, you don't question them. Like there are some that I think are deliberately open to interpretation and there are two or three ways you can read it. Um, but then I think there are some things that are just open you know, to mm-hmm. interpret or that are just like, they don't really mean anything. There's not like a deeper meaning, They're but it like seems flare. like there is, but it yeah. seems like there is because everything else has like a double, you know, dual layer. Like the whole movie's about duality. And, uh, and so I can see maybe some people getting caught up on things that like, if you ask David Larry, he's like, Oh, that, Oh yeah. I don't know. I don't even know. Cool. I just, yeah. yeah. Like I just did it and thought it looked like, uh, uh, Sean Harris is King Arthur pronouncing Gawain. I just Garwin. Garwin. He just doesn't know his nephew very well, so he can't pronounce. It drove me nuts. I was like, "Oh my god, is this a way that's like to pronounce it that I like an older way that I didn't know about?" Like, okay, Sean Harris. Like, maybe he knows something I don't know. He did all his research or whatever. And David Lauer's like, "No, he just did it that way." And I just went, "Okay," and like let him. And I was just like, "Fair enough." Um, But yeah, so I think I think this might be one of those movies that suffers a little bit from people maybe overreading a few things. It's so, you know, this is not just about this movie, but it's about like fandom and media viewership and criticism in general. Like there are so many movies and shows out there that have so much like deep meaning and meta Mm -hmm. elements, but not everything is meta. Sometimes things just are. Sometimes just like you, and you can, and it doesn't mean that people aren't wrong for like interpreting that, but you also can't like ascribe like authorial intent to everything that you interpret. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's, the big thing is too, is that if it proves not right, or it isn't as something, well, then it's like, you can't get mad at the, yeah. the creator or the director or the writer for it not being that you just yeah. assume like that was your interpretation. Then you decided yeah. that was happening or that's what yeah. it meant, which doesn't I mean look yeah. what happened with WandaVision mm-hmm. like everybody assumed like oh Mephisto Mephisto and then it didn't happen and people were mad and it's like 
nothing about this guaranteed he was showing up yeah ever like ever like you just read into that and convinced yourself yeah. that's what was going to happen it's because like looking for those sort of things is fun but you also have to like look at what's look at the store what's the story of the story yeah not the you know subtext like the, sometimes the text is just there yeah and like I've been you know deep in fandom for a long time it'll be like you know don't pay attention to whether or not like the wallpaper looks like honeycombs like just look at the scene between these two characters that's happening in front of the wallpaper that's going to tell you more about yeah what's going on rather than the wallpaper that maybe just looked cool yeah but in a movie like this where everything's open interpretation I think it it, it's going to lend itself to sometimes some over you know interpretation interpreting where it's like no that was just that he they just thought it looked neat like that's why that scene happened um but I but I think overall this was just a really well done movie and and in in many ways the most pagan movie we've gotten uh in quite some time yeah I really thought that was really cool to kind of see that in in cinema yeah more more Mm -hmm. pagan movies please yeah agreed Yes. So for listeners who would like to find your work, you've got a lot, you have some articles up about the Green Knight. I do you have mm-hmm. um, a Twitter. Where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Alicia Grouso. Uh, and then you can find my writing at Screen Rant uh, at Adam Tickets. And then I just uh, had a piece up about the Green Knight and the, the biggest changes from the poem to the, the uh, movie on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, excellent. Yeah. I just, I read, I read, I think both of those because you had another one on screen rant too. Yeah. I had yeah. one uh, about Morgan Le Fay. I had a couple on screen yeah. rant. Yeah. Yeah. I read them all. They're great. So everyone go Thanks. read Alicia's wonderful work and hopefully we'll have you back some other time to talk about some other, we'll talk about Tolkien maybe. I think that'd be yeah, fun to absolutely. talk about like mm-hmm. paganism and Tolkien. Cause that's definitely like an Ouroboros of yeah, influences really there. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Real Magic. I love doing this podcast and it makes me so happy that people enjoy it. If you'd like to support us more, please do give us a rating or a review on po- Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Make sure you're subscribed. Tell your friends and follow us on Twitter at Real Magic Pod. I'm also on Twitter at FangirlingJess, and you can find me there anytime. This is usually the part where I say we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode, but I did just finish writing a very long book, and I'm going on vacation for a little while. Um, I'll be up in the mountains. It'll be very nice and very quiet, but no podcasting equipment up there. So I will be back in four weeks on September 10th with a new episode. But if you miss me and the pop culture paganism, please do listen back to any of the other 24 episodes on the feed. This is our 25th episode, guys. I'm so excited. Oh, my God. Um, Until you hear from me in September, though, stay safe out there. And remember, if a giant green man asks you to trade blows at a Christmas party, like, go for a small nick in his neck or something. No, go for decapitation because that will bite you in the ass or, I guess, the neck. I'm not sure. Well, you get what I mean. Bye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Goodbye, cruel world. Bye-bye. Goodbye to life. Bye-bye. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye to all that.